Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Tom McMillan, author of Gettysburg Rebels. Tom McMillan, author of Gettysburg Rebels, Five Native Sons Who Came Home to Fight as Confederate Soldiers. How did you find out about these five? Slowly, Brian. I, I've gone to Gettysburg for 25 years. It's, it's, it's my passion. Uh, I, I love to go up there and study Civil War battles. Uh, and, and I always wanted to write a Gettysburg book, but there's so many of them. I, I, I wasn't going to write the 10th book on Pickett's Charge. I needed to find a fresh topic. I, I kind of stumbled on this slowly. I was aware of the stories of two of these men, uh, Wesley Culp and Henry Wentz, although they hadn't been e explored. It always kind of intrigued me. When I was looking around, I was talking to my book agent about, after I wrote a Flight 93 book, what should you do? I had a couple ideas. He said, I like that Gettysburg idea, but is there enough? And I didn't know if there was enough for a book. Well, through the research, I found out there weren't two, there were five. And they were all tied together. And then I thought there might, there might be a chance that there was enough there. So it, w it was a fascinating research journey. To, to uncover this information. I think one of the reasons it hasn't been written before is it, it was hard to get at. It was, it was a lot of digging, uh, which, which, which I enjoyed. But I just thought, you know, th there can't really be, I think history is best told through human interest stories rather than this regiment fought here. We need that. But I thought, what better human interest story than guys who came back to their own hometown as foreign invaders in, I mean, in any war, really. But in the Civil War, which meant so much to our history, and in Gettysburg, the most, the most famous battle that we had. So I thought I'd dig into it to see if there was enough there, and sure enough, there was, and I, I learned many things myself. Now, two of the names you mentioned, Culp and Wentz, people who go to Gettysburg will see Culp's Hill and, and the Wentz House. How, then there's the Hoffman, three Hoffman brothers. Yeah. How did you find them? They find, well, uh, thinking of the Wesley Culp, who was the most known of these guys to the extent that they were known because the Culp family was very prominent in Gettysburg. They were looking at the, at the census. There were 70 people named Culp in the 1860 census, not that big of a, of a town, and obviously Culp's Hill. But I was trying to figure out what happened is these guys in the 1850s all moved to Virginia, or actually what's now West Virginia, but then Virginia, for work, which was not uncommon. Uh, and they ended up joining militia units that then became part of the Confederate Army. That's how this all happened. But I was trying to figure out how Wesley Culp got there at the age of 16. And, and I had read a little bit that he went with his employer. He worked at a carriage shop in Gettysburg for a man named Charles William Hoffman, C.W. Hoffman. So in researching him and looking at the census, you find a lot of, a lot of details in census reports. Um, I noticed that in the 1850 census, he had three young sons who, if you added 10 years to the 1860s, would have been old enough to be Civil War soldiers. So I went to the National Archives out of curiosity, and sure enough, uh, Robert, Frank, and Wesley Hoffman all not only served in the Confederate Army, but were in units that fought or that were in the Gettysburg Campaign, came north with Robert E. Lee. So that gave me five. And that gave me, you know, two a little slightly known quantities and three totally known unknown quantities, plus their dad 
who, who C.W. Hoffman became a, a, an unexpected to me uh, integral part of this story. When you find soldiers who are unknown quantities up to this point, how much stuff is there about them that you can well, flush out a book? It's, it's amazing, and, and that was the quest to find it at the beginning, to find was there enough. The National Archives is full of service records, so you can dig in and you can, you can find little, little clues. Um, but beyond that, uh, in, in digging and looking online, I don't know how people research before the Internet, but just in... In, in uh, throwing, casting fishing lines online, I found out that there was an unpublished Hoffman family history that was not published, just printed, like mimeographed at a, at a library in Dallas. So I went to Dallas. Texas? Uh, Dallas, Texas, yes. His family, they had ended up moving to Dallas. Robert Hoffman, after the war, ended up moving to Dallas. So his ancestors are there. And sure enough, there it was just on pieces of paper and it was, there was a treasure trove of information about that family, the three brothers, their dad, and their ancestry, how they got here. So I was fortunate enough in this research, really could not have done the book if, if this didn't happen, to find two unpublished family histories. So those are, those are gold mines. But without, without that Hoppin family history, I would not have had enough. But all of a sudden, all these clues were there, how they got to the U.S. from Germany, how they got to Gettysburg, the story of, uh, of, of why C.W. Hoppin left Gettysburg. And then I, in, in the book, it also, um, my Flight 93 book didn't end with the crash. This book does not end with the Civil War. Wesley Culp was killed in the battle, but the others, the three Hoppins and, and Henry Lynch survived. So I followed their lives after the war as well. I think we, when you intrigue the reader, about it, they, it just doesn't stop. So I was able to trace them uh, as they went throughout the rest of their life. They were all prisoners of war. They all signed oath of allegiance, and they all returned after four years as, as traitors, so to speak, all returned to be, uh, to be U.S. citizens. So those little clues, when you find those things, uh, you know, you, uh, you're ready to give yourself a high five. When you come across a book like The Hoffman Family, history and you're sitting there, do you, how much of it do you write down? I mean, do you, do you photograph the yeah, pages? Yeah, I, I ran off at the library. I, I spent a lot of time at the photocopy machine at the, at the printer that day and, and ran it all off. And then I got some names so uh, you can kind of tell who some descendants are because it went through their families. And I tracked down some people and I, I cold wrote letters to some people who I, I thought were Hoffman family descendants. And most of them wrote back. Surprisingly, most of them wrote back. They were interested. They didn't have all that much information, but they were intrigued. But they provided little tidbits uh, and, and a lot of encouragement. So, yeah, I ran it all off. And it's amazing what you don't, the first time you read it, what you don't recognize. As you're going through and researching, and as you learn more, you go back, you know, in the, in the 12th chapter, I'm writing the 12th chapter, and I go back and I read this again, and I find something that now makes sense to me that I didn't realize, and I add it to the third chapter. So I, I found that with, with, with my books that you're constantly researching as you're writing. It isn't like you do all your research and then write the book, because some of this stuff doesn't come into context until you continue to do the, the research. When I first read it, it was just a line, and now it's, wow, that answers, that, that answers a mystery for me. So that was part of the, the research, is, is, if, if you're into this kind of stuff, the research is, is so interesting, it's, it's, it's the quest. It's, it's, it's at, least, at least as much fun as the writing. How often do you come across something that's a, like a letter somebody wrote or a diary that hasn't been opened in 100 years? Yeah. Not during this project, I, I did it a lot. I, I, I mean, said, you'd think they'd all be found by now. Yeah, and, and really for these guys, and again, I think one of the reasons that, when you, even the, just, just the Battle of Gettysburg, there were 160,000 soldiers. We don't know those 160,000 stories. We probably know 500 stories out of that 160,000, so a lot of stories are out there. 
But this one just, this attracted me because of the foreign invader. But you do that. We were looking through uh, the other great, the other great clues I found were deed records in county courthouses. My wife and I went to, uh, fiance now wife went to these little towns in West Virginia and Virginia where these guys moved, and by going through the deed records and finding the property, you not only follow their trail but you find out things about them, and and, and you're thinking these aren't far from famous people. They were just regular guys who were in the, who were in the Civil War. And I, I said at one point. Nobody's opened this. We were in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Said, Nobody's opened this book for 150 years. There's probably some guy who, in 1856, who's recording this by hand. It's all handwritten. So, why am I doing this? Nobody's ever gonna, never, never gonna look at. It. I said, well, well, pal, somebody is, is thanking you for your work because 150 years later, somebody is doing it. But even beyond that, the, the letters. Uh, I did come across three letters, and these guys didn't leave a lot. Um, if they wrote a lot. I think you know a lot of stuff uh, gets destroyed, gets thrown away. I can't say they didn't write, but what, if they wrote anything, it, a lot of it hasn't survived. But I tracked down a Culp family descendant in central Pennsylvania. Again, again Cold wrote him a letter, um, and uh, his father had done a lot of the family history. His father had since passed on, and he said, "Whatever, you, whatever I have, I'll look in the box. You can have it." And he told me he had three letters in the 1860s, and I'm banging off the walls thinking he'll let me go to his house and put white gloves on and look. And the next day he texts me, he said, Tom, I put them in the mail to you. So he, he mailed these three 1860s. Thankfully trust. they arrived. But I can tell you, you, uh, you tremble a little bit when you hold a letter written in, a, in the 1860s. And just the little clues that they provide by just looking at that handwriting. I, I, we, we ran a photo or a scan of one of Wesley Culp's letters because no one had ever seen his signature before. When he, you know, he's not famous. He's not George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. He's just a guy who fought in the Civil War. But, but he's part of Gettysburg lore, and no one had seen his signature. And just, just to see that, and you, you transport yourself into his life just a little bit. I wish there had been more of that, but there was just enough... Uh, to give you a sense, he was writing to his, in both of his letters, he was writing to his sisters back in Gettysburg. And the other letter in, from 1862, his brother William was in the Union Army. So you have brother, you, you hear the phrase brother against brother. This literally was brother against brother. William was not at Gettysburg, but they did meet on the battlefield. But in 1862, a year before the Battle of Gettysburg, Wesley Culp was taken prisoner by the Union Army. He was taken to Fort McHenry in Baltimore. William's regiment happened to be posted near Baltimore, he got a pass to go to prison to visit his brother. So the Union brother visited the Confederate prisoner and he wrote to his sister back in Gettysburg about, about that meeting. Wesley says, says hello and tells you not to worry about it. He'll get out early. It's really, it's really surreal. This, this book, some of these stories are really surreal when you think of it. This, this family, the sister back home has, has a brother in the Union Army and a brother in the Confederate Army and not much information going on. It must, it must have been a really bizarre time. Well, if, if he was a prisoner of the Union Army in 1862, how did he happen to be fighting again for the Confederates they a, had a prisoner, year later? They had prisoner exchanges. He, got, uh, he was held for about three months, and uh, his, his, service, his Confederate service record shows when he was captured and when he was released, specifically the day he was released, August 5th, 1862, there was a massive exchange of prisoners. They don't have to swear they won't go back into combat? Even if they do, you, there, there, there's no way of enforcing it. There was no record of him signing an oath of allegiance at that point. Perhaps he did, uh, but there's, there's no way to enforce it. And remember, the, these were different times. 
they had no way to handle all these prisoners. Sometimes it was more convenient for the armies to just exchange the prisoners after all. And yes, make, maybe make them sign an oath, hopefully they won't go back, but you, you can't control that guy's way. And within, within a month or so, uh, there's a record of him back with his, with his unit. You know, there's not a daily record, but we know by October he's back with his unit, and again, uh, coming north for the, for, the, for the Gettysburg campaign. I want to ask you about one of these things you say, um, at one point, Johnson's division marched through Hagerstown, Maryland on June 22nd and turned toward the Pennsylvania border. We know the men were in or around Chambersburg, Pennsylvania until June 26th because Wesley addressed a short letter at that time to his sister Ann Colt Myers in Gettysburg. So he was with the Confederate Army and he could mail a letter to yeah, yeah. Gettysburg? Yeah, he was. How did they, how did he get there? He was, he was writing home. But, but the Postal Service would Some, deliver? I, how they did that, I have no idea, but there were, there were letters home. He, uh, he wrote, there, uh, those letters uh, do not exist, or at least I could not find those specific, but there are references to those letters. Several times there are references to things that Wesley writing to his sister back in Gettysburg. So they, he was able to get, to, to get letters back home from, from the south uh, to the north, and perhaps they didn't know he was a Confederate soldier, but they, they got to that. That, uh, that was referenced in another unpublished family history that I, that I found. Uh, the man from Central PA, in addition to sending the letters, he sent me all of his materials. Well, one thing I think he didn't even realize that he had was a six-page handwritten story of Wesley Culp that was written by Wesley's niece in the early 1900s, and her mother was Ann Culp Myers. So her mother was the one communicating with Wesley and meeting with him. So it's not exactly firsthand, but she heard it from the firsthand source, and she wrote this. And nobody'd seen this stuff before. So she's referencing that particular letter that, you know, that a week before the Battle of Gettysburg, he, uh, he, he sent her a letter. So Anne in Gettysburg is getting periodic information from her brother about what's going on. And imagine what the townspeople are, are you know, are, are, are thinking. You can imagine what their opinion of Wesley Culp was. I want to ask you about somebody you mentioned earlier, C.W. Hoffman, because he's sort of the hub of this. He's the reason the, the five of them moved to Virginia, and he's yeah. the employer of them. Yeah. Who was he? He really is. Uh, well, I, I, was, I didn't think he'd be, when I first started researching, I thought he was a transitional figure. Because uh, to the extent that he's mentioned it all in previous history, it's Wesley Culp went, went south with his employer, C.W. Hoffman, a carriage maker. He was always referred to just as a carriage maker. In researching him, I found out, uh, kind of stunningly to me, he was one of the most prominent citizens of Gettysburg in the 1840s and, eight, 1840s and 1850s. And that's what, what really stunned me when uh, I had to find out why he moved. He was a three-time borough councilman. He was a trustee of the, of the Methodist Episcopal Church. He served on the temperance committee that represented Gettysburg at the, at, the main, uh, at, the, at the State Temperance Foundation, so he was one of the leading teetotalers. And he was also part of the committee of esteemed citizens that formed Evergreen Cemetery in Gettysburg, which still exists, which is the reason we call it Cemetery Hill. That was the public mm -hmm. cemetery. He helped create that cemetery where years later uh, Abraham Lincoln would give the Gettysburg Address. So part of it is... This guy is so prominent. Now I'm curious why he left, because he had just been, he, we, we know he left in 1856 by various records. In 1854, he, he ran for a, a, a three-year term on Gettysburg Council. He opened a new steam mill. He was opening businesses. He was, everything he was doing was showing he was setting down even deeper roots in Gettysburg. So why did he leave? Uh, anyone I talked to said it, it must have been for business. The carriage business was really big in Virginia. That was their uh, marketplace. 
it was at the Adams County Historical Society, which has to be the best small town historical society in America. So many records. And I was digging through the, uh, the Methodist church records because I knew he was a trustee. They aren't all, it's, it's not always fascinating reading. I had to go through uh, old church records. But I, I, I found my clue. He had been involved in a brutal fight in town with another businessman with sticks and clubs and irons. And, and, and they, they beat the heck out of each other. They were both injured. He was briefly thrown out of his church. So we, we looked, we said, there had to be a record of this somewhere, and the Adams County records are in, are in Harrisburg, and we, we sure enough, we found the grand jury proceeding where he was convicted of assault. He was only fine, but he was convicted of assault. And from that point on, you can see with this humility, it had to be the humiliation of everything. He had to step down from borough council. He was at least briefly, he was certainly disciplined by his church. For a while he was thrown out of the church. He lost his position as a trustee. In this you can see now it starts to make sense. He's making all these plans. Uh, newspaper advertisements, another great resource. Going through the Gettysburg newspapers because these businesses, the only way they could communicate with people was through advertisements. So you see uh, C.W. Hoffman says he's going to be selling his business in a year. This is in 1855. So all the pieces Two plus two occasionally, occasionally it runs it equals five, but in this case, a lot of times it equals four. So that's why he was, he leads this family south. He leads four, Henry wants one of his own, but he leads his three sons and Wesley Culp. So in that little wagon train from Gettysburg to, Shepherds, uh, to Shepherdstown, about 50 miles, he's taking four, uh, four future Confederate soldiers. And then he clearly uh, believes in the Confederate cause because I found numerous documents. He was too old to be in the Army, but he is supplying goods and services to the Confederate Army. There, there are many receipts with his signature on them. Um, do, do you get any sense that he was a Confederate sympathizer, Southern sympathizer before he moved he, south? He could have been, and that might have been, you know, all these records. Part of the, the challenge of history is the mystery, and we can't ever find all of it. It's what keeps us going. I can't find the reason for that fight. They both were carriage makers, so there could have been just a business rivalry. Um, one was a temperance man, one, one sold spirituous li uh, liquors. Could have been over that. It could have been over the coming battle. Gettysburg was very close uh, to the border. It was very close to the Mason-Dixon line. It could have been. Um, the indications are he, he, he very well might have been because he turned to the Confederate side so quickly. They, have, they, may, have been his, uh, they may have been his feelings anyway. But I, I can't say definitively. So, and I say that in the book. I can't really tell you for sure here. This is the information I have. I'm a big, the reader can draw his own conclusion. But I don't write this in the book, but that's a conclusion that I, that I draw. Do you have any sense of how many Southern sympathizers were living around Gettysburg at the time? I, I don't know number. I mean, the, the, you know, the town itself was about 2,400 people. Obviously, there were, there were more in the county. But there certainly were, there were There were other Gettysburg men who fought in the Confederate Army. The difference of these guys is they fought in the Battle of Gettysburg. I was trying to nail it down to these guys. They, you know, just, not just there, there were numerous cases of men from the North fighting for the South and men from the South fighting for the North for all sorts of reasons. And some of them were work reasons like, you know, like, like, like these guys. But the fact that these guys came back to their hometown, which, again, I wish they had written or I wish there were letters of what they would have thought in 1861 and 1862. They, they certainly never thought they would be back in their hometown. But the other thing about this, and we can get into it now or later, is one of the things that stunned me was that there was no evidence that Robert E. Lee or any of his senior commanders had any idea they had five Gettysburg men in their army. 
I wanted to ask you about that because you have people who know the lay of the land. Yeah, and it, and it was it, it's really a stunning lack of communication and a failure on the behalf of the Confederate Army and from a military sense because this was commonplace for them in Virginia. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, James Longstreet, there are records of if they were around Fredericksburg or Richmond or Chancellorsville or, or whatever and there was a local man in the ranks, they pulled him out of the ranks temporarily and assigned him as, as a scout or a guide. To the, to the general staff, because you know, one, one, one man that Stonewall Jackson used before the Battle of Chancellorsville was, was said to know every hog path, which makes sense. It gives you all of a sudden uh, th this great intelligence. Um, I can't imagine why this information didn't rise up the ranks, because the Confederate Army, without its cavalry for the first day and a half, was going blind and got lost or confused by terrain at least twice at two critical moments on July 2nd. Um, Whatever else these guys were doing, and they obviously weren't great military heroes, four of them never rose above the rank of private, but whatever else they would or wouldn't have done in the battlefield, they wouldn't have gotten lost. How that would have changed things, I don't know, but they, they wouldn't have gotten lost. And it just, it's stunning to me that, because their fellow soldiers knew, there are many records of their fellow soldiers knew these guys were from Gettysburg. And I just can't even imagine, just, just chatting, hey, we have a guy in the Army who grew up here, and it apparently never happened. Well, you tell a story about some uh, Confederate scout for Lee, who misidentified the round tops? Yeah, he, uh, Robert E. Lee, in the morning of July 2nd, second day of the battle, was trying to figure out the Union position very early. He sends his engineer, Samuel Johnston, on kind of a famous reconnaissance, out to scout the Union left, see exactly where it is. Johnston comes back a few hours later and points on a map. He says he got to Little Round Top. He got there. Uh, and so Lee based his battle plan on that information which was flawed because historians have known for years now that if Johnson actually got to Little Round Top, there weren't troops on it yet. But the, the area was teeming with Union troops. So his he report was there were no Union soldiers? None. In, he would have seen them and they would have seen him. So he clearly got to another hill in the area. We, we, there are all sorts of guesses. Gettysburg historians love the guess. You could read little magazine articles, this hill or that hill. Uh, we'll, we'll never know for sure. But it wasn't Little Round Top. These guys would have known Little Round Top. They wouldn't have gotten lost, and therefore the whole battle plan would have been different. One of the things uh, you say in your book about uh, C.W. Hoffman, the senior, was uh, at, at different times he was arrested by both sides. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, he ended up to be, being to be this fascinating character. It is very difficult to get in, uh, arrested by both armies during the same Civil War, but C.W. Hoffman somehow, he was quite a, you clearly, he was a tremendous businessman, but he was also clearly an operator. He, had a, he was owning 10 properties and nine businesses, and he was moving around. And, and after three years in, in Shepherdstown, uh, Brian, he actually moved farther south to Fauquier County in Virginia and bought a farm. After 20, 25 years as a, as a, uh, as a carriage maker, he, he became a, bought a 500-acre farm. And looking at that deed, the, the most stunning moment of my research, looking at that deed, it listed all the property. We've seen stuff about slaves, and I've seen all the listing about slaves, but it lists all the property of the farm that he per purchased. And right in the middle of that are three names of human beings. And just, it, it, you know, you know what happens, but it, to see it written that matter-of-factly, so... They were part of the property. Yeah, yeah. and he, so he became, they just had first names, he became a slave owner. Um, but in this process, so clearly he's invested in the Confederate cause, and that farm in Fauquier County was right between the lines, almost through the entire army. Union and Confederate troops are going through all the time. But C.W. Bissett, he's figuring out there's a way he can make money. So he, he's selling horses and cattle and blacksmithing services. He's doing all, all, all this stuff. And so after a while, in early 18, in, in the, the, probably June 1862, 
The Union Army's had enough of this. And they, they, they arrest him, and they, they, they take him to prison down in Washington, D.C. And he, he, according to the records, he's only there for about a month because a month later he's selling stuff back to the Confederate Army again. But, uh, but, but they took him there, and in the family history, um, Robert Hoffman's daughter writes about how difficult that was for the woman, women because the three men, the three oldest boys, were out fighting in the Army, and now father is, is in prison, and they're, they're trying to run this farm in the, in, in the middle of a war. And, and later, uh, he gets arrested by the Confederate Army. He's down in Virginia, and he's doing business, and he's refusing to accept Confederate Army. I'm sorry, Confederate money. And they get mad, so they, they arrest him, and they take him to prison. Uh, he probably caught the scene, and he talked his way out of it pretty much by saying, I have three sons who are in the Confederate Army, so they let him go. But, yeah, so he has the, the, I don't know if there was anybody else there may have been. He has the rare distinction of being... Uh, arrested by both the Union and Confederate armies during, during the Civil War. So whatever you think of his deeds and his feelings, he was, he was certainly quite a character. Uh, somebody we haven't really talked about is Henry Wentz. Yeah. Uh, if people go to Gettysburg, they see remnants of the Wentz house. Yeah. So who was Henry Wentz? At, at, the, corner, at the corner of the Emmertsburg Road uh, and the Wheatfield Road is, a, is an empty lot with an iron tablet that says Wentz House. And nothing is there, or virtually nothing is there. No one ever visits there, in part because right across the street is the Peach Orchard, which is one of the most visited spots of the battlefield. But whenever you read about action at the Peach Orchard, that's also action at the Wentz House. It was right across the street. If you go to that property, and again, almost no one does, you can see the remnants of the stone foundation of that house that John Wentz purchased in 1836. And he lived there, again, in 1862. Henry grew up there. Grew up in that house, uh, lived there for probably 16 years uh, as a boy before moving south to Virginia. And this is, I read about this in Harry Fonz's book, The Second Day, but it's only eight lines. It's probably the, the, the original kernel of the idea of this book, but I, I probably read it 20 years ago and, and, and didn't do anything with it for a while. 600 yards away, there's a tablet for Taylor's Virginia Battery that fought there on July 2nd, 1863. Henry Wentz was in Taylor's Virginia Battery. He was, an, he was an orderly sergeant. He was in an artillery unit that was posted 600 yards, not only from the house where he grew up, but where his parents still lived and where, although he didn't know it at the time, his dad had decided to endure the battle in the cellar. So Henry Wentz's artillery unit is firing at Union troops around his boyhood home with his father in the cellar. That day, uh, the Confederates have some initial success on July 2nd. They move, the artillery moves forward with the infantry. They're eventually posted about 150 yards north of the Wentz house. That night, fighting stops. Henry's curious. He goes into the house in, in a relative road. Uh, there was a relative who became a, a historian in the uh, early 1900s, and he wrote that, that Henry was surprised to find his father in the cellar. So they actually had a conversation. So two of these guys not only are coming back to their hometown, but Wesley Culp and Henry Wentz, both interacted with immediate family members during lulls in the battle. I mean, talk about civil war, lowercase civil war is different than any other kind of, of war. You're, you're fighting often against your own people. We hear brother against brother, but here were, here were people who came home to their house or to the, the places where their, where their relatives lived. Henry Wentz was in his boyhood home and then goes back to his unit and the next day takes part in Pickett's Charge. So um, he's a mysterious figure. He never owned, he never owned uh, a home. He never married, never had children. So there, it was really piecing together his record was the, was the most challenging. But, but I, I was intrigued by it. But here he is, here he is coming home, literally coming home to his front yard in the Civil War.
Do you know why he went south in the first place? Again, for work. He was working for a carriage company. But uh, not and he wasn't with the other guy. He was, a, he was a little older than the other guys. So he went his own early, probably 1852, according to this, this family historian. Uh, Henry went south to, to Martinsburg. Again, then Virginia, now West Virginia. If he was in the carriage business for a while, he got out of it quickly because in the 1860 census and, and the 1870 census, he's listed as a house plasterer. So he changed his work. He was always a tenant. Uh, he, he's buried uh, in the plot down there in Martinsburg, uh, owned by the family of, of, of the man who owned the business that he worked for. So he was always, and, and he, he died in a, in a, in a, in a boarding house. Uh, in Martinsburg. So it's a, it's a sad, from a human standpoint, it's, a, it's kind of a sad, lonely story because I never found any of those records of any other, any other connections. And, and maybe he was one of those guys, as we hear of people today, who found his purpose in military service. And he was maybe better in military service. It's amazing. His, his record, he was never absent. He was never sick. He was never wounded. He just served. And, and he never appeared, did anything particularly heroic. He just served every every two months in those uh, in those muster present 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 present. He did work his way up to orderly sergeant, so he had some leadership capability, but never rose above that rank. Served throughout the end of the war. Went back to Martinsburg after the war. He was captured uh, toward the end of the war. Yes, uh, uh, Wesley Culp was 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 killed in Gettysburg. We can talk about that a little if you want. But the three Hoffmans and uh, and Henry Wentz were all taken prisoner. Uh, Robert in 1864, the others in 1865. Yeah, Henry Wentz was taken prisoner right before the end of the war, a few days before the end of the war, and they all signed oaths of allegiance. And some of them, uh, Robert Hoffman's oaths of allegiance, have a copy of that in the book. You can find those at the, at the National Archives. And, and uh, so they all served uh, served time in Union prisons, and and then went back. And just you know that very surreal situation. They're U.S. citizens until 1861. They're traitors for four years and are U.S. citizens again in 1865, and they go on to live their lives in the United States of America. Is, uh, is C.W. Hoffman's shop still standing? It is not. There's one building left, though, and it's, it's, it's marked with a very small sign in Gettysburg on Chambers, Chambersburg Street. It's the final building. of He had a, a huge, uh, for the time, carriage and complex and other businesses uh, on, on Chambersburg Street in Gettysburg. There's one building that's left. There's a little sign that said, this is the final building. But I, I found it, and I put it in the book, and I've had so many of my Civil War buff friends say, I've been to Gettysburg a hundred times. I never knew that sign was there. So I do get some play. It was in Gettysburg uh, not long ago, and somebody was walking down the street reading the C.W. Hoffman sign. So I, I don't know whether, whether I sent them there or not, but I like to think I sent them there. So you get some, get some. If I see people in the Wentz House property at the C.W. Hoffman sign, I'd, I'd take a little pride in that. What got you interested in Gettysburg in the first place? I think, like, a, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I think, like, a lot of Pennsylvanians. Your parents take you there as a, as a small child. I was always interested in history, uh, but went for a cheer, career in journalism uh, instead. And, and I think like a lot of people, as an adult, I got reinterested. Some, you know, life gets in the way for a while. It was when the movie Gettysburg came out in 1993. I, I went to the theater. It was, it was a four-and-a-half-hour movie. Went to the theater here in Pittsburgh on a Tuesday night. Became absolutely engrossed. That Friday, I drove to Gettysburg, and I've had the addiction ever since. I don't know what direction my, uh, my uh, hobby pursuits would have taken had I not gone to that movie. But, and I've just, I go up to the anniversary days uh, every year. Uh, Pennsylvania Cable Network obviously sh shows those. Oh, I yeah. see myself in the background. Sometimes the old ones see the steady regression of my hairline. Um, 
but I, I just I'm, I'm, I'm drawn, love the little town. We'll probably end up retiring there. And, and, but I always wanted to write a book, but I wasn't going to force it. I, like, I said at the start, I needed to find a topic that I thought was fresh, that I was maybe able to break some new ground and was intriguing. And, uh, and, and I, I hope I did that with this one. When you go there now, do you go there with a purpose? Like, I want to look at this thing that I've yeah. heard about. All, or, almost, or almost, almost always. Almost always. Because you, you, you read about it, and, and my wife is a Gettysburg buff, and we'll, we'll have some of those comments. What do you want to do this time? And, and we, through some of this and through some volunteer work, you, you meet some of the esteemed guides, and you can go on tours with them. And the one thing uh, my, my late mother used to always say in the mid-1990s, haven't you, haven't you seen everything? No, again, with 160,000 soldiers there, you can never know every story. You can never get to the end of the Internet. That's what, for those of us who love history, that's what keeps us coming back. You can never know everything. Even when I, even some of the famous, you know, Pickett's Charge, every time I read about Pickett's Charge, I still learn something new. So that's, there's the, I think for historians or amateur historians, there, there's, there's the constant quest. And now I've done two books, one on Flight 93, one on Gettysburg Rebels, and I want to do more. It's a good hobby. It keeps me out of trouble. So uh, I think the next one will have a, a Gettysburg tent, too. I, I, I hope so. But, but, you, but yes, we always research. Do you have a favorite spot at Gettysburg? Um, I, I have so many. I have a lot of it, it, It's kind of moved over the years. Uh, I was always drawn to the wheat field. And I, I'm not one who believes in spirits or ghosts or anything, but I did not know much about my family history. My parents weren't interested at all. They were, they were children of the Depression, one, one foot ahead of the other. We have enough money to make it through today to tomorrow. So it wasn't until they passed on that I started researching it, doing my genealogy, and I really wanted to, I just wanted to find one guy who fought in the Civil War so my family wasn't all cowards. Uh, I found 31 in the family tree, including two great-great-grandfathers, but I found uh, nine members of the family tree were in the 62nd Pennsylvania who fought in the wheat field at Gettysburg. So since knowing that, I have no idea. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not one, people who, one of these people who believes in that, that drew me to the wheat field, but I was always fascinated by the wheat field. Now I'm really fascinated because I had people in my, in my tree that, that fought there. But pretty much every part of the battlefield intrigues me. And tr one of my quests here was the, the, the Wesley Culp story was the one that was most known, to the extent it was known at all. But the legend sounded a little too nice and neat to the old newspaper man in me. And I wanted to find that it was true. And I found out that a lot of it was, it was close, but it wasn't. So finding the area where I thought he was shot was one of the, was one of the best quests. What is the legend? The legend is, well, he was killed at the Battle of the People know that he was a Gettysburg uh, resident who went south, fought in the Second Virginia, and was killed at Gettysburg. The legend, as written most places, he was killed on July 3rd on Culp's Hill, which is a very romanticized story, on a farm owned by his uncle. And that's the story you hear all, you know. And, and whenever I would talk about this story, people would say, oh, he was killed on Culp's Hill on his uncle's farm. So I looked into it, and again, through some of these family histories, and he was actually killed on July 2nd. It wasn't on Culp's Hill. It was on Wolf Hill, which is nearby, but a, a, a different landmark. Um, and the farm wasn't owned by his uncle. It was a, uh, doing the Culp family genealogy. It was a more distant relative, still a relative, but it was his father's first cousin, a first cousin once removed. So I'm not even sure how uh, much Wesley knew them. It was on his family's property. You know, Culp's Hill was on his family's property. That's still very interesting. But I wanted to find out in uh, his sister whom he visited. Uh, Wesley uh, uh, was there on the night of July 1st, the first day of the battle. And he got a pass to go into town to visit his sister. So at the very least, his brigade commander knew he was from Gettysburg. Didn't pass the information up the line, apparently. But Wesley goes into town 
Now, the Confederates held the town that night, but it's still a, a, a town of Union citizens. His heart must have been pounding. He knows where his sister lives. He just Brown, went up and knocked on the door? Knocks on the door. The sisters don't know he's there. I mean, for a split second, they open the door. There's a guy in a Confederate uniform. It must, it must have been terrifying. They realize it's their brother. Um, obviously, hugs and kisses and, and catching up for a few hours. And he tells them about you know running into his brother. His sister admonishes him for shooting against his brother in the Battle of Winchester. All this kind of stuff that you would expect, but it's weird to read it. There was a Pittsburgh Gazette Times newspaper story in 1913 that tells a bit of this story, but it was also written in more detail in that unpublished family history that came eventually from Ann Colt Myers, who, who Wesley visited. So her daughter is writing this story. as told. She writes, as our mother told us many times, often as the transitional phrase. So he's, he's in that house. And two nights later on the night of July 3rd, a friend of his from, from Shepherdstown who was in the unit came to that house, knew the Culp sisters from their many visits to get to Shepherdstown to visit Wesley, and informed them the sad news that their brother had been killed. And he tells them very specifically, he was killed on the morning of Thursday, July 2nd, while skirmishing. So the evidence that the Culp family got was that it was July 2nd. Then, as a historian, if you're doing your due, due diligence, I have to find out, did the 2nd Virginia skirmish on the morning of July 2nd? Is, is this true? Does it pass the smell test? And in fact, they did. Uh, his regimental brigade and division commanders all report that the 2nd Virginia was involved in brisk skirmishing on the morning of July 2nd. And I found two accounts from Union regiments, the 27th Indiana and the 9th Massachusetts, that they were skirmishing with Confederate troops. And so that's where I placed it uh, near Wolf Hill. That's where that skirmishing took place very early in the morning uh, on uh, a farm, the Deerdorf farm at the time, which is bisected right now by uh, modern-day Route 15. If you're on Route 15, you're on the Deerdorf front. But the, Deer, the, the war-era Deerdorf house still stands on Montclair Road in, in, in Gettysburg. It's, it's been for sale for several years. It's now really historic in my mind. Um, but that's, that's the area where I think, by, based on this uh, and the, the regimental information, these battle reports, and the information from the Culp family that they got from a, from a soldier who knew Wesley well, he was killed there on July 2nd. Did the sisters really find the butt of his rifle? They found the butt of his rifle. They went out looking for him uh, because this man, Benjamin Pendleton, told them where Wesley was buried. The problem, and this leads to part of the confusion, he said it was, he said it was Culp's Hill. He's from Virginia. He doesn't know Gettysburg. They're also, in doing this, there were often times that the Confederates misidentified the hills. Well, of course they did. They'd never been here before. They weren't on a, on a tourist trip. They were under battle. So they knew they were near Culp's Hill. He said Culp's Hill. So the sisters never found the body. They did find the, find the body of his gun inscribed W. Culp. I got the photo from the Gettysburg National Military Park in the book. So how did that happen? How did they find the gun but not the body? Well, the Confederates didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of guns and ammunition. They, 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 needed, they always needed more guns, more ammunition, more equipment. There is no, Wesley was the only man in his unit killed during the Battle of Gettysburg. There, there's no way the Confederates are leaving a functioning musket lying there on the ground. Somebody picked it up and continued the battle. The 2nd Virginia was briefly on and certainly near Culp's Hill on July 3rd. So I believe the soldier who picked it up then either was killed or, or left it there during the Confederate retreat, and that's how they found the gun, bat, the, the, the butt of his gun, but not his body. A woman by the name of Jenny Wade works her way into your story. Yes. For people who don't know, who was she? 
Jenny Wade is really a famous part of the of Battle of Gettysburg, especially for, for tourists who aren't really into the military part, because she was the only citizen of Gettysburg that was killed during the battle, which is quite amazing. You have 160,000 soldiers fighting there for three days, vicious fighting, bloody fighting, and only one citizen is killed. She was killed on the morning of July 3rd, the third day. Uh, and as the story goes, she was in a house that was on the battlefield. She was baking bread, and, a, and uh, there was some sniper fire, and a bullet went through the, one of the doors, don't know if that was Union or Confederate, and, uh, and killed her instantly. She knew what, she was one of Wesley Culp's friends. They knew each other uh, from growing up in Gettysburg. And she was romantically linked to another one of their friends, Jack Skelly. This is all part of this, this triangle, who was in the Union Army. Two weeks before the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union Army and Confederate armies clashed in Winchester, south of Gettysburg. That was where the Second Virginia went up against the 87th Pennsylvania from Gettysburg. So Wesley Culp fought against his brother. He also fought against Jack Skelly. Now, they don't know it at the time. But as the Confederates win this part of the battle, and as Union prisoners are falling by, Wesley Culp sees some guys from Gettysburg that he knows. And one of his second cousins, a guy named Billy Holtzworth, said, he says, Hi, Billy, you're a prisoner. Uh, can I do anything for you? Billy says, I I'm fine, Wes, but Jack Skelly's back there in the edge of the woods, and he's wounded. Can you help him? So Wesley Culp goes and finds his wounded Union friend, gets him taken to a hospital. Jack had a mortal wound. He would, he would die about about July 12th, but they had a conversation. And he gave, part of the lore is he gave him what we believe now, what people believe now, is he gave him a letter for Jenny Wade back in, in Gettysburg. If you ever get home, please give this to Jenny. That's a romanticized story. The first time this was reported, it was, it was reported in the early 1900s as a message for Mrs. Skelly, for his mother. So how it got into Jenny Wade, I don't know. I, I present both sides in the book, but certainly these two friends, uh, uh, opposing soldiers meet on the battlefield and talk, and, and there, was, there was some sort of message for either Mrs. Skelly or Jenny Wade, but that's the Jenny Wade connection, and all three of these young people died. Uh, Wesley Culp was killed during the battle, Jenny Wade was killed during the battle, and Jack Skelly w uh, died a few, uh, a few weeks later, and none of them knew of the, of the fate of the others. So it's a sad kind of story of uh, what a civil war can do to a town and to a family. Um, any of the five of your main characters fight in the same unit? Uh, Robert Hoffman and Wesley Culp were both in the Second Virginia. Those were the two that did, uh, and they were about the same age. Uh, born in, one born in eight, 1839, one born in 1840. So when C. Baby, Ho C. Baby Hoffman takes them to Shepherdstown, they're teenagers, and it's, it's 1856. They immediately joined a militia unit, and this was commonplace in the 19th century. It was uh, it was a great social. You know, first of all, you have to put on a uniform and march with a gun and pretend you were in the army and you're defending your town. But it was also a great social outlet at the time. There weren't a lot of social outlets. You can get together with uh, like-minded men and probably drink beer and, and talk and do some, some army drills. And for these guys who were moving, even though it was only 50 miles, they're moving from the north to the south. They show some loyalty to the town. So they both joined a militia unit that was named the Hamtramck Guards. And as happened, these militia units made the Confederate Army. They, they, the Hamtramck Guards, when the war broke out, enlisted en masse, and they became Company B of the 2nd Virginia. So these guys knew each other, worked with each other, and were in the same unit. The others were, were in different units. Uh, one of the Hoffman brothers was, was in the cavalry, and uh, Frank Hoffman and Henry Wentz were both in the artillery. So they, they covered all, the, all the, uh, the units of the Army. And Frank Hoffman, was, was he the baby of the group? Wesley Hoffman was the baby. Wesley. He was the youngest brother. He, he enlisted at the age of 17 in 1862. He was in the cavalry. Um, he, they all came north. 
He did not fight in the battle proper, but there was, uh, there was a cavalry action on July 3rd in Fairfield, eight miles uh, from the battlefield. He w his unit was in the, in the Battle of Fairfield on July 3rd, so they were eight miles away. But because of that, um, he would have been an excellent candidate to be a scout or a guide because he was with the campaign. He was in Pennsylvania, but his unit wasn't heavily involved in the action, and he was on a horse. He was a cavalry guy. He would have been a perfect guy if somebody said, hey, we have a guy from Gettysburg in our army, he can, he can really help you out as a scout. So, uh, but, you know, that, that never happened. Well, did any of the five fight in any of the other major battles that led up to Gettysburg? Yes. Uh, uh, in, in 1861, the first major battle, the Battle of uh, First Manassas, Bull Run, uh, Robert Hoppin and Wesley Culp were there, the 2nd Virginia was there, and Henry Wentz was there. His artillery unit was there. They fought side by side. They were there at the moment when Thomas Jonathan Jackson got his nickname. Wesley Culp and Robert Hoffman in the 2nd Virginia were in the Stonewall Brigade. Their first commander, brigade commander, was Thomas Jonathan Jackson at Harper's Ferry. He got that nickname during the Battle of First Manassas when other Confederate uh, commander some said, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians. So all three of those guys were, these guys were a lot of the, a lot of the really critical junctures of, uh, of Confederate Army history. Uh, Wesley Culp and Robert Hoffman were there when, you know, when, when Stonewall Jackson left the brigade to move up to senior command. They served under, under Stonewall as a, as a as brigade division and corps commander. They were, they were with him for several years. I, I don't know that they knew him personally. They probably didn't, but they were, imagine the stories they could have told. Again, I think there are so many stories that these guys, that, that went to the graves with these guys, with all these soldiers. Some of them wrote prolific, prolifically, most of them didn't. And we find this today. We, we find a lot of soldiers today, you hear that they don't want to talk about the battle. They don't want to talk about it. And, and it may have been the same kind of war reaction here, but it, it's, it's sad for history that we don't have that, in, that information. But they witnessed many of the, the iconic moments of the Civil War. Um, you've been on this program before for your book about Flight 93, but you're not a full-time writer. What is your full-time job? My full-time job is Vice President of Communications for the Pittsburgh Penguins of the National Hockey League. How do you get a gig like that? <laughs> Again, very carefully. I, actually, I wanted to be, uh, I always wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a sports writer. So I went to Point Park University here in Pittsburgh, and I, I was. I was in the media for, for 18 years. Uh, I covered the Penguins, actually, for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette for their first two Stanley Cups in, and, in 1991 and 1992. And careers sometimes take unexpected turns. In the mid-'90s, um, they decided that they wanted somebody from the media to run their media operation. So it wasn't a job I looked for. It wasn't a job I ever thought of. They came to me, and I thought, that might be interesting. And it's, it's been perfect. I've been there for 21 years, and it's completely, it's kind of a same solar system, different planet. You know, you're still in the media. You're still in the information. Obviously, with the, the way the technology has changed, it's a completely different job than it was in 1996. But uh, my bosses know my passion, so they're very kind. And, and, and uh, occasionally giving me some time to, to do some research for books like Flight 93 and Gettysburg Rebels. They, know, they, they always know where I am, and they, uh, you know, it keeps me out of trouble. Do you travel with the team when they're yeah, on the road? Yeah, st still do somewhat, not as much as, not as, much as I used to. But, but yeah, do was there at, at, at the Stanley Cup Finals. But I, I always tell people that, uh, you know, because they say, how do, you, how do you, you're a sports guy, how do you do this? I said, for most people, sports is their escape from their real life. It's their escape from their job. It's what they do in their downtime. When you work in sports, no matter how much you love it, you need an escape from it. I can't go home and just watch hockey games all night. I, and he's, so uh, 
history and the Civil War in Gettysburg are my bound. That's what I do during my downtime to, you know, to, to get away with. My, my first trip uh, out of Pittsburgh after we won the Stanley Cup was, was, was to Gettysburg. It, just, it was nice to get up there and relax and, and reminisce up there. What were your nights like the nights the uh, Penguins clinched the Stanley Cup? They're, they're, they're amazing. They're, they're surreal moments because you, you realize they're each a moment in time. Uh, we've been a very successful franchise. Uh, uh, I, I've been around some way for all five cups. I've worked for the team for the last three Stanley Cups, including back-to-back. -back. You realize how very hard it is. You absolutely don't take it for granted, and it, it, it's, very, it's a very surreal moment. When you're on the ice at the end of the celebration, the Stanley Cup's out there. If you grow up as a sports fan, you grow up as a hockey fan, Something you really do pinch yourself. Am I really here? Is is this me? You're watching this going on, but you appreciate, really appreciate what it takes. I, mean, I, I I'm a hockey guy from way back. It's always been my favorite sport. It is absolutely the hardest championship to win. It's 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 a long ride. It's it's tough. football. You have to win two or three playoff games. Hockey, you have to win 16 over two months. It's a grind. And what I've learned from the championships is how close you come to losing and the years that you win. Uh, and so you appreciate it that, that much. You know, nobody remembers when you don't win a championship. We've had good teams that, that didn't win championships, maybe great teams that didn't win championships. You're, you're correctly or incorrectly, you're only remembered if you win it. But I had an interesting story here. The uh, release date for the book was obviously picked months in advance. It was going to be June 12th. We won the Stanley Cup on June 11th. That was, that was quite a two-day two span for me with uh, being there for the, to, to win the Stanley Cup and, uh, and then the book coming out the next day. Have you gotten to hold the Stanley Cup? Yes, it's, uh, it, it, it's quite the honor. It's, it, it's, and, you know, that's why that trophy is so magnificent, though, because you don't get to keep it. It's different. In, uh, you know, it, that's the trophy. That's the historic trophy. The winning team gets it, but you only get it for the offseason. The regular season starts, and you have to give it back. It's no longer yours. You know, in football or baseball, the Pirates have multiple World Series trophies. The Steelers have six Super Bowl trophies in, in, in their lobby. They're magnificent, but they make one every year. This is the trophy that great players hold. So, and and, and you, every time you touch it, I've had a chance to touch it twice now, uh, three times now, uh, you realize I might never touch this again. I hope we keep winning. I hope we win more championships. But, it, but it's hard. Every time you have to appreciate the moment. So this is really special. A lot of people don't get to do this. So when you come down off that high, how do you kind of wind yourself down to calmly sitting in a library doing research for a book? You go to Gettysburg and it calms you down. No, it's, <laughs> uh, it's uh, well, fortunately, I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm just doing some preliminary research for the next book now. So I can do, I can do it in peace. But, and people said, how did you write it during the, during the playoff run? Well, obviously, the, the book is finished in December. There, you know, it, it, it takes six months or so. You go through the editing process a little bit. That's, that's done in, in, in January. So you, you've kind of come down off that. And as far as the high of winning, you don't want to come down off that high for a while. You, 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 you enjoy staying on it. And, and, and uh, there's the parade and you stand. But, but then everything calms down. And it, it's quite a busy summer with the Stanley Cup, though. It's, 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 it's on its world, it goes on its world tour. And uh, it's, a, it's a short, busy summer for those of us who work there. It's very compressed, but we take it every year. We take that short summer every year. So, so you have things to do during the uh, offseason? Oh, yeah. You, all, you always do, and it's, it's really, but think of it, it's, it's compressed. You know, most teams were done in early May. We, we played till the middle of June. So uh, from your work, you, you, the, the summer in our business, people think we're like teachers. We get off. The players get off. The, 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 you know, there, there's all the, work, the, the prep work done, done for the season. So uh, you're in the process of doing that pretty much from the time you play your last game until the start of training camp in, in September. So that's, 
That's what keeps you going. There's, a, there's always a challenge in, in the sports business. We're getting back to your book, we have not talked much about Frank Hoffman, one yeah. of the Hoffman brothers. He was badly wounded. In, he was, in he was badly wounded. It's, it's, again, a story I, I wouldn't have imagined. I, I, I saw part of it in, in, the, in the family history. He was an artillerist. He was, he was the middle son. He was an artillery unit. Uh, fought in Pickett's Charge, was part of the great, the great candidate before Pickett's Charge. So he, he and Henry Wentz were probably about 100 yards from one another uh, in, in that great candidate. He, very late in the war, was very seriously wounded with a gunshot wound to the head or neck. There's, the, the, the records are, 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 are conflicting on that but was virtually left for dead on the battlefield, was taken prisoner uh, only because he was left for dead. And they thought he was, gonna, they, he was going to die. His family thought he had died. Six months after the battle, C.W. Hoffman gets a letter from Frank that he has, not, he has survived the battle. He's still very weak. He can't make it. Can you come and get me? So C.W. Hoffman, who again, for, what, for whatever you think of, uh, of his views, was a very good father, goes down elatedly and, and brings his son home. And... Frank has respiratory and coughing problems for a few years. And one day, according to this family history, he coughs up a bullet. He coughed up the bullet that was still in his body. And from that point on, as his former commander who had checked in, he became a hale and hearty man and had six to eight children. So things just things we can't imagine happening today. Again, you, you don't hear about your son. You don't hear his face. You might think he's dead. You haven't heard from him six months after the war. I'm saying you get a letter from, come and get me. I'm wounded. And you nurse him. He was nursed back to health based, based on the family farm, and he coughs up this bullet. A really, I use the word surreal, Brian, a lot when I speak about this book, but it, it, it's a surreal story. It was a surreal experience to research it. Another one, Robert Hoffman was a musician. He, what kind of musician? Yeah, he was. He was a, and, and his grandfather, who first came to the country, was a musician. Never found his way here and disappeared sometimes in the 1830s. Uh, Robert was a guy who, uh, in his records, went AWOL four times at least from the Confederate Army. They didn't and was, shoot him? And was always let back in. I couldn't figure this out. My theory is that... He was going home not only to check on the safety of his family because his wife was living with his parents, but C.W. was supplying, uh, you know, supplying goods under the table to the Confederate Army. So my theory is that may have been why they let him come back. They know he, w he was actually, even though he wasn't with the infantry at the time, he was doing good for the Army. That's the only thing I can figure out. Eventually, they got tired of it, and he was put in the commissary department. By the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, it, 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 you almost laugh at this when you first read it. He's driving cattle with the Army. But then you research it, and Robert, one of Robert Lee's objectives coming north, he had multiple ones, was to pick up uh, provisions and supplies and cattle. The Army needed beef, so they, uh, they, they sent half the cattle back to Virginia. They kept half of it with the Army. How do I know but Robert was with the Army? There is a receipt in, from Carlisle, Pennsylvania on June 30th, 1863, with his name on it, where he has delivered cattle to the Stonewall Brigade. So he's with them in Carlisle, so he's probably a few miles behind uh, the real action. But again, he would have been a great candidate to pull out as a scout or a guide because he was in, he was in uh, the immense fighting. After the Battle of Gettysburg, he, gets in that, he goes from the infantry to the commissary department. Now he's made a musician. So 
you know, music was important to the union. We can smirk today, but music was very important for morale back then. So he was in the in in uh, in the music union of the Second Virginia. Do you know what instrument he played? Uh, I don't know. There was no re there was no record. His, his 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 father played the piano. There was a grand piano in their house. It obviously couldn't have been the piano, but he had some music capabilities. I wish I could find us. I'm really hoping. I talked to six or seven Hoffman family descendants. I know there are many more out there. I'm hoping somewhere that somebody reads this book who may have a clue. They may have a photo. They may have more information on these guys and not know about it. Um, he didn't, but it, it, it wasn't a cushy job. Musicians were often near the front line. Robert was the first of these guys taken prisoner. He was taken prisoner in 1864. He was taken to Elmira. He was nabbed in an escape attempt. So he was, he was in a union prison, several union prisons for more than a year before he kind of defiantly signed his oath of allegiance. So four of your, your five were POWs. What yes. was life like for a yes. prisoner of war? It was, it, it was obviously worse for union soldiers in Confederate prisons because the Confederates were running out of supplies. It wasn't great for Confederate soldiers in union prisons. Uh, prisons. Obviously, the focus was supplying our army. Now, war is going on. Uh, you do what you can for these prisoners to try to treat them humanely. Um, there are, I found most of it in the study of Robert Hoffman by looking through the prisons. There are books on the prisons where he was held and some of that terrible uh, disease that, you know, that, that, that ran through these places, uh, smallpox in particular. Uh, at one point, he got a shot. He got a, he got a shot, and his daughter writes that he thought he was going to lose his arm because his arm went cold for about a, for about a month horrible conditions that these guys were under. Again, better uh, in the Union prisons, uh, but, but, but still not great. So by piecing together that and a little bit of what his daughter wrote about his experience in, in prison and then looking at those prison records to see what happened. But th they, were, they were terribly overcrowded. If they were built for 900 men, there were 3,000 men there. So you, you just imagine uh, what that was like for these guys, a horrible way to uh, to, to endure life for that time. And you said one of them was captured just a couple days before Henry, Appomattox, so who, did he go off to a prison camp? Yeah, Henry Wentz was in a prison so camp. He missed, missed going free by it was, a couple of days. But yeah, by, by a couple of days was taken. And, you know, there the are sad stories of those guys who were killed, and not these guys, but were, were killed in the last few days of the war when the war's almost over. And they, but Henry was held until about June. I mean, there was, you know, it wasn't immediate. Everybody's getting out. And the, some of that might have been some defiance. And some of it just, we're just not letting everybody go at the same time. So uh, he doesn't get out until June. He's sent back to, to Martinsburg. And then part of the fascination for me was following these guys through the rest of their lives. And you know, what must that have been like to have been in the Confederate Army, the losing side of an army, and now the country is reunited again. Although that you know it wasn't easy, it wasn't smooth. There was still a lot of consternation. We're still de dealing with some of those issues today. But imagine, uh, imagine back then, and in pla a place like Martinsburg, which is so close to the Mason-Dixon line, that was a town like Gettysburg that was split. You know, there were men there who fought for the Union Army. There were Union sympathizers and Confederate sympathizers. So it wasn't always easy to be a member, uh, even, in, even in what was, uh, had just become West Virginia, but old, old Virginia, part of the Confederacy, um, where you come back as, as a losing soldier. Life wasn't necessarily easy. Well, you said at the start of this that you didn't just end the book at the end of Battle of Gettysburg, but you followed them to the yeah. end of their lives, and we will not have any time to talk about that because we're out of time. Good, that's a good tease. <laughs> if you want to find out that, you'll yeah. have to buy the book. Tom McMillan has been our guest, and the book is Gettysburg Rebels, Five Native Sons Who Came Home to Fight as Confederate Soldiers. Thank you very much. Brian, thank you. Thank you as always. Appreciate it.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.